Today is Wednesday. It's August 16th, 2023. It's 2.41 in the afternoon. This is John Williams. Thanks for dialing into the Mincing Rascals podcast. We're glad you're part of our little podcast family. Share us with your friends. Give us a good rating. And listen for us most Saturday nights at 8 o'clock on WGN Radio. You can hear me 10 to 2 weekdays on WGN. I'm Austin Bird from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Brandon Pope from On the Block, powered by Block Club Chicago and WCIU, and host of the Making Podcast on WBEZ. And I'm Eric Zorn, the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a Substack newsletter. Okay, guys. Uh, nice to have Brandon. We uh, haven't had you in our company for a little while. You've been good? I've been good. I'm, I'm rested. I'm 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 here. I'm ready. Let's let's, let's talk about some issues, shall we? <laughs> We're going to talk about the movie The Blind Side. We'll talk a little bit about Donald Trump's latest indictment, number four. If you're keeping score at home, I think it's 91 counts now across four different indictments. But we're going to start on the campaign trail last year when Brandon Johnson said that if he became the mayor of Chicago, he would almost certainly get rid of the city's public health director, Dr. Allison Arwady. Johnson's campaign was largely financed, you may recall, by the Chicago Teachers Union. Dr. Arwady and then Mayor Lori Lightfoot wanted the schools to go back to in-person, in-school learning during the pandemic sooner than the union wanted that was supporting Johnson. So when Johnson won earlier this year, the question became, how safe was Arwady's job? And now we know, not safe at all. As the new mayor went to the Bruce Springsteen concert on Friday night, he had a member of his staff fire Dr. Arwady. Arwady has since said that she and the new mayor have not once exchanged more than three words. She never got a chance to make her case. Asked if this was payback from the CTU, Mayor Johnson said, all together now, Realize. <laughs> Real. <laughs> Real. Lies. See, I don't, I, I was hearing, here's how, here's how hip to the room I'm not. I was hearing that line for the first time. He said, realize, realize, realize. I didn't even know those were three separate sentences or phrases. <laughs> well, so clearly I, you didn't have a MySpace profile in 2005 where you had different <laughs> quotes like that. One of the most quoted lines. Really? I mean, <laughs> so Brandon, when you heard that, you went, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. You know, you can't believe what you hear. Real eyes eyeballs he should have pointed to them he should have acted it out for me real eyes realize you know you get it real lies somebody who's not being truthful then i would have gone oh okay now i see why you fired her even that's still a, a non-explanation but uh, brandon what was your reaction to that look man i was i was in the room I think that was his third time quoting Tupac in that press conference. Oh, that's right. He, so, did, he did a shout-out to you, too. Didn't he label one of your questions brilliant? He did. I don't think it was a brilliant question, but <laughs> I think, he, he did do that. Yeah, I, I thought the, the Tupac jokes or lines were a little uh, – what's, what's the best word? I hate to say corny, but just a little, little overplayed. And as far as the already situation goes, look, I, I think the controversy comes because – it seems like he did not actually meet with her and have a discourse with her as he said that he would. And that's something that I think anybody in any professional situation would hope they would have is, is an opportunity to talk with their 
new employer before getting the boot. Obviously, new regimes come in. This happens with, with companies all across the board. New regimes come in, and they want their people in, and they're going to make changes. Happens in the media industry all the time. We've, we've all seen that happen, right? But you want that FaceTime and to be able to at least have that exchange. The fact that that didn't happen, I think, is what people are reacting to here. However, you know, Johnson did not make any secret about the fact that he wasn't happy with Arwady during the campaign. Him and CT, him and the CTU had major disagreements about letting children back into schools and teachers back into schools. When when Arwady decided that was going to be a good time to do so. Um, while at the same time, bars and things like that were still shut down at a point. So, you know, that issue is still top of mind, I'm sure, for Brandon Johnson on his side. Uh, some view Dr. Allison Arwady's public health stances as more neoliberal, whereas, you know, that is not the approach that Brandon Johnson likes. So we made a change. I just think that the way he went about it probably was a mistake if he truly did not have a conversation with her before this happened. One of the things that really bothered me about this was, first of all, that when Brandon Johnson was on the John Williams show on WGN and when he was on WBEZ after his election, he said that he was he had some differences with Arwady, that there were some rubs there, which uh, Brandon Pope just articulated quite well, but that he was going to sit down with her and talk to her and work collaboratively. That's his whole thing. His, his whole shtick is, I'm going to be collaborative. I'm a collaborative toxic mayor that we had before. Uh, he did not sit down with her. And then he kept her on for about close to three months after his inauguration, which made me think maybe he was revising that decision and wondering whether he should keep her. And then suddenly he lets her go on a Friday afternoon, which is a classic news dump time. We all know this in the media, that if you want to bury a story, you try to get it out as late as possible on Friday afternoon so the reporters don't have time to write about it for the Sunday paper. You get it done. He does this a day after the the, uh, health commission, the city's health commission, had written a letter extolling the virtues of Arvody's leadership during COVID. I agree that there is a legitimate discussion about whether Arwady's decisions that are Lightfoot's decisions through Arwady, I guess they were working pretty much in tandem, whether those were the right decisions during COVID. The people are saying that uh, that uh, the teachers were right not to want to go back to the classroom. Other people are pointing out that if you places that opened up quickly versus places that didn't, the educational outcomes were fairly similar. It's, it's perfectly fine that he wants to, that Mayor Johnson wants to put his people in place. That's that's understandable. The fact that he treated her with such disrespect uh, and tried to bury the news and then wouldn't answer questions about it, legitimate questions from you know the reporters on Monday afternoon and instead quotes Tupac Shakur in this, I don't, I don't know what he means by who, who's lying. He says, realize, realize, realize. Who's lying here? What's the lie he's talking about? And he, nobody followed up with that. Like, what, what is this guy talking about? This is, and, and I think these are all legitimate questions. And it gave me a, you know, a lot of pause about this guy that I, I already was not sure about him. And the way he's handled this has just, I think, been been uh, ominous. So Arwady isn't an elected official and she isn't a politician. And I think what he risks by doing this in this way is that he's completely politicized that office because he hasn't answered questions about why it went down the way that it did. And it's quite clear that the Chicago Teachers Union and their allies on sort of the far left of Chicago have been out for her for a long time, not just because of school openings, but also because she testified against a bill that would essentially uh, force unionize a lot of social service providers in the city of Chicago, which is another CTU priority. 
And she, as a public health official, testified and said, you know, this jeopardizes service delivery because we don't have as much uh, operational discretion in the way that these programs are, are, are carried out. That was, again, you know, made to be a, a political point. And so the message that that sends is you have someone who basically, you know, worked 24 seven for two years under very difficult circumstances, not as an elected official, as a public servant in a position. And, you know, they were treated, treated very poorly in a public manner. What it speaks to is the, the message that it sends is one, I'm going to do the bidding of this, uh, this organization that probably doesn't reflect the ideas about Dr. Arwady that most Chicagoans have. I haven't seen a public opinion poll on her favorability, but I'm sure it was uh, astronomically higher than Lightfoot's, and I bet it's much higher than Brandon Johnson's. And uh, so one, I will do that, and uh, I will take directions there. And two, when asked about it, I'm going to sort of deflect. And and I, I think that was just handled in such such a terrible way. It was a quip. As you were saying that, Austin, I was thinking, who is more beloved or respected in this city, as a public official, say, than Dr. Allison Arwady? I mean, really, she comes on the radio a lot. She does a podcast, which is kind of funny. The health department said that the Dr. Arwady podcast has now been canceled. Uh, no kidding, uh, as, as has been Dr. Arwady. Uh, but it was just a quip. Right, like he should have, if he wants to throw out that line, but then at least give us a paragraph or two of some of the stuff Austin said. Like we really had fundamental differences on mental health or autonomy of health departments or the way the thing was handled. At least give us a paragraph. But just to kind of wink and nod like that was was weird. There's there's no question that they had differences about certain things. The question is whether those differences were reconcilable, whether you need somebody. I mean, Arwady has an, an incredible resume. She's a Harvard, Yale, Columbia grad who has served in all, at, at the, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, Illinois Department of Public Health. This woman knows her stuff. And we need someone if, the, God forbid, there's another pandemic. You, you know, I mean, the, the new the interim is not even a, a, a doctor, medical doctor. And you're going to need somebody who's really good if this kind of thing happens again, someone who the public trusts. And if Johnson had explained this publicly, if he had said, you know, look, I disagree with her on the, the uh, dumping issue, the recycling plant issue down south. Yeah. And uh, and there was the uh, the unionization issue. There was the schools opening issue that he didn't see eye to eye. Perfectly his right to make that case and say, I'm going to go in another direction. Thank you, Dr. Arwady, for your service. He might have even talked her into resigning, which is generally what happens in these situations. And there have been some people from the Lightfoot administration who have resigned, and I don't know under exactly what circumstances. But you want to give someone their dignity on the way out. You want to give them, you want to give them the chance to say, I'm going to spend more time with my family or whatever they want to say or to pursue other opportunities. Because, yeah, you, you, you don't necessarily want to have a team of rivals. I Certainly Johnson doesn't want to, apparently. The way this was handled was so bad. John, I don't know. I, I've gotten whole. I've gotten like sixty, seventy comments on my space already. Nobody has come to the defense of how he handled it. Several people have said, "Well, he had the right to do it." Has anybody who's called your radio station said that was the way to handle it? You got to tough. You got to be cruel to be kind. Anybody say that at all? No, there's been no second wave, and usually to stories like this, there is. You know, I think really has a legitimate complaint besides Dr. Arwitty herself about the way she was dismissed is the new police superintendent. There they are saying, here's our guy, 
and you want to sort of believe that this is a good hire because this is one of the mayor's – this is his first major high-profile hire. And the elephant in the room is you treated Dr. Arwood. He's so crappy. We want to know more. We, we, we want to know about that too. And that's where the quote came that, – that's where this all went down. Was this payback from the CTU leadership because Dr. Arwadi wanted schools to open during COVID? Every single administration um, has to be prepared for transition. And uh, my administration is no different in that regard. Transition is difficult um, for everyone. Um, but as already been articulated, I don't know how many times you're allowed to quote Tupac um, in a press conference, but you can't always go by the things that you hear, right? Realize, right? Realize and realize. That's also Tupac Shakur. What? Does he have? Is that him? fair, John? I don't know, man. I, maybe maybe we in the media obsess over already a little bit and want that question answered, but I'm not sure that was like. I don't. I, I don't think that was the overall buzz going on. Like I think people were genuinely wanting to hear more from the superintendent. And I think they wanted both. I, I, I pardon me. I'll, I'll, I'm going to let you finish to quote Kanye West, but. <laughs> <laughs> but look how the sun look at the front page of the sun times it had both of them side by side not that the sometimes is the arbiter of my opinion but i but i agreed with them that there was the new superintendent and there was the outgoing public health director side by side when it should have been here's the new police superintendent for chicago yeah that is the most important job in Chicago right now, and he was sharing the front page with Dr. Arwady. I think that's more of a media framing issue than it is what the public is thinking type of issue. I I, I, I think it may be a little overblown on, on our side, on the media side a little bit, because it's just it, it's kind of just a standard decision that's going to be made regime to regime. Things are going to change, and really, if we really think about it, I don't think it really had much to do with CTU, and the school reopening issue, as much as it did the mental health clinics. She, she opposed reopening those. That's something that Brandon Johnson has said he wants to do. And then she's come out against unionization uh, for healthcare workers before as well. So I think those are, she, she doesn't align all the way with the things Brandon Johnson ran on, so it makes sense he'd make the change. I think the story that, that everyone's reacted to, as you said earlier, I think Eric said it earlier, is – Everyone can agree she has, he has the right to do so. It's the way he did it. I just I just don't think that it needs to be blown up the way it has to where you frame Arwady right next to the police superintendent as, he, as if these are the two big things. I, I think that's bad framing. I can't name a single other Chicago public health commissioner besides Dr. Arwady. I, like, that's the only one I know. There's been <laughs> that's, a good point. that's a good point. <laughs> and I, like, I think more people know who Dr. Arwady is than knew who david brown was who knew any of the previous police superintendents just because of the huge public role that she played in our lives the for, only pandemic for yeah, for two years like she was she was hitting every media outlet and just like talking a lot and people got to know her and i think that sort of explains the media's interest i think partially is yeah like a lot of people in the media have talked to her and have relationships with her but also it's almost like downstream of People know who she is and and nobody knows who the new police superintendent is or the old one. And that actually brings me to a question for everyone is, does the Friday news dump is does it have the opposite effect now? Because it seems like this actually got major way more coverage for 48 hours 
because it was on a Friday and then it was the weekend and people are just filling time over the weekend. I think it's a very good point. And and the fact that he stomped all over his news and and I thought the appointment of Snelling, most people were predicting that. And he seems uh, he had some wrinkles in his record back in the 90s, uh, some brutality claims. But since then, he seems like he's been a a really good member of the force and highly respected. I thought it was a choice that was going to repair some of the damage that he, just his election alone and some of the rhetoric during the uh, campaign had created. So it was a good opportunity for him to have a really good news week, and he stomped all over it. And I don't know what the hurry was to get rid of Arwady. Uh, you know, he had basically put her back on the shelf. Apparently, she told uh, Marianne Ahern that uh, she wasn't allowed to speak out when, you know, the, the, the smoke was coming down from Canada, the, the, uh, the wildfire smoke was coming down she wasn't allowed to talk about what people should be doing to mitigate the risks of that which was which was as you looking back on it was kind of an appalling thing for an extremely petty thing for a mayor to say look you can't talk about this like what is that about what what's whose interest is he serving through that um again you know my, my feeling is just that he handled it so poorly and that's and that's such a bad sign for how's he going to handle real crises going forward um so i mean i think i don't think that we're overblowing this to talk about uh, about how bad it was it sounds like it's an executive issue and he made an executive mistake in how he handled it yeah that's why i I just feel like we're overblowing what's an executive decision right like I, i i don't think it's really to the level of here's the guy who's running the police department and crime strategy and steering the crime vision for a mayor who was talking about radically transforming how we do handle crime in the city. You know, like that to me, with the framing at least, deserves way more discussion and weight. But Austin, that's a great point of the Friday news dump. I haven't thought about it, but like, that's exactly what happened. It is. We're trying to fill rundowns on TV and radio on weekends. Okay, it's it's right there for us, right? Man. I will also respect the right of the chief executive. Like when the president becomes president, he gets to appoint all of his attorneys. He gets to appoint his cabinet members. The U.S. attorneys all know that they're going to exit regardless of how good a job they've done. But this in the in the world of a city mayor isn't like just the streets and sand guy or some other administrative post. It was our public health director who a lot of people felt saved lives, guided us with the best science and medicine available. So she has maybe a little more brand equity than a lot of these other people do. And that job is crazy important to us. At least it was. I'm not sure how important the next public city health director is going to be, but it really was. But here's where I've landed on this now. I'm like, okay, rookie mistake. It's an administrative post. He gets to pick his person, and he made a mistake here. If not in getting rid of her, at least in the way he handled it. But he still hasn't been mayor for 100 days, and I'm still willing to hold out that the new police superintendent, Larry Snelling, will be a good one, and that, you know, we'll all prosper and he'll be a good mayor. One of my colleagues, Lisa Dent, said on the radio, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with Mayor Johnson. Uh, He's not my guy anymore. She checked out. She got off the bus. And I'm not willing to do that because it's just too soon to tell. I think everything about this decision was wrong. But I'm not the mayor. He gets to make a mistake. So I'm still giving him a chance. I, I am with you on that. I, uh, like I said, I think it's ominous what he, how he handled it. And uh, I, I'm still, I still haven't seen a whole lot from him in terms of a, a vision that's going to actually happen in the city. I don't think he has a way to fund most of the things he wants to do. 
Um, but you have to give you have to give him a chance because you want the best for the city. I said this right after he was elected. I said, you know what? Uh, he's our mayor now, and let's let's all hope for the best. Let's hope he's so good that he's reelected four times and you know dies in in office at ripe old age. I mean, I, I really I do hope for the best for him, and he is new. And let's yeah, I think we have we do have to call it a rookie mistake. Hopefully, if nothing else. By the way, is it Quinnipiac or Quinnipiac? How do we Quinnipiac. say Quinnipiac? The new national Quinnipiac poll is just out. This is looking at the candidates running for president on the Republican side. So right now, no surprise, Donald Trump, if primary voters were to vote today, 57% of them would vote for Trump. DeSantis is 18. Uh, He keeps going down. In some states, he's single digits. There's something just good about how DeSantis is disintegrating, but I'll move on. Vivek Ramaswamy is... In third place with 5%. Pence with 4%, which has to hurt his feelings. Haley, Scott, Christie, Hutchison, Hurd, Elder are the rest of them in that order. Um, The only ones with 4% or more are Pence and Ramaswamy, then DeSantis and Trump. Uh, Pence and Ramaswamy are moving up, particularly uh, – uh, Christie is at 3%. I think he's gotten a little traction lately. But it's Ramaswamy that seems to be uh, catching some notice. DeSantis on his way down, and Trump can do no wrong, even uh, as he gets indicted for the fourth time. And I believe the total counts against him in four cases across the country are now 91, 91 different counts. He's still – checking in at 57% of would-be Republican voters. So Vivek is sort of reminding me uh, a little bit of 2008 with Ron Paul, and I guess 2012 with Ron Paul as well, where you sort of have a candidate who's willing to talk about, not willing to, uh, cares to talk about issues in a way that's sort of completely different than the rest of the field. And in Ron Paul's case, it was coming from like a very pure libertarian philosophical background. In Ramaswamy's case, it's just sort of He's a very compelling public speaker, and if you let him go for 90 minutes on a podcast, he's going to sound like one of the smartest people you've ever heard speak. Uh, So that, I think, is compelling. So if he's going on Barry Weiss's podcast and he's going on the All In podcast with with David Sachs and those people, like he's doing a lot of non-traditional media, and he comes across really well uh, when he's doing those things. So he's not, um, to my chagrin, like a libertarian. I don't really think at all i think he describes himself as an america first conservative or an american america first patriot or something like that he has some 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 line but i could see totally young people being really interested in him uh and because he's a he's a captivating captivating figure and the more attention he gets will be get more beget more attention Mm -hmm. because it's captivating. Yeah, he's. I, I agree with Austin. I, I listened to the Barry Weiss podcast. I thought that he was uh, extremely well spoken. I mean, the guy speaks in sort of rounded paragraphs, and he's not. He's, not, he's not reading from a script, but he's he's very uh, very sharp. Some of the positions he takes, he wants to get rid of the FBI. Uh, he seems to think that Putin is just as as good as uh, Zelensky over in the in, in the Ukraine Russia war, and he wants us out of that. He doesn't want us to defend the interests of Ukraine, uh, which even the most people in the Republican Party do want. He wants to get rid of the Department of Education. Uh, there are a lot of things I think are going to strike people pretty far out, and he is confident that he's going to be able to, able to go along with these ideas. Uh, but I think once you once he get it's, the, the real test is not going to be whether he can 
bat ideas back and forth with a podcast host is whether he's going to do well in, in debates, whether he's going to do well when he's challenged. But I think he could really he could uh, easily overtake DeSantis, who's a, such a, a colorless candidate. Uh, I'm not speaking about on here. I'm speaking just about his uh, uh, his affect. He doesn't even look human sometimes. <laughs> uh, and and, and, and Ron Swamy, wow. he, he has a good story. That's no, I'm, I'm serious. You, you see, you see the guy. He's just he's kind of weird. I mean, DeSantis just kind of. And I, you know, I'm not going to vote for any of these guys. So I'm just saying this is how he comes out to me when I'm watching him in interviews and so on. So I'm wondering why Tim Scott, who's the uh, the African American senator from South Carolina, why he's not catching on any more than he has because he's got a great story. He's a really good speaker. I would think that he would be more attractive to primary voters than he seems to have been so far. I think it might be because he's not nutty enough to track in the Republican primary. Vivek Ramaswamy, I think I'm, is it Vivek or Vivek? I believe it's Vivek. Vivek Ramaswamy. I figure if I could have learned Raja Krishnamurthy, I can figure out how to say Vivek Ramaswamy. In fact, I was thinking I wanted my fantasy pantal is Vivek Ramaswamy, Raja Krishnamurthy, and Violetta Padramedic, who used to do traffic on my radio station. She would have no business on that panel, but it would be fun to say all three names at the same time. It's very interesting. A couple months ago, he was actually uh, doing a tour of the south side of Chicago. He did a town hall. Um, He went to Woodlawn. He went to um, Bronzeville. He went to some barber shops and had some debates with, like, William Calloway, who was a pretty prominent community activist, most prominent with the uh, uh, Laquan McDonald case, um, talking about issues here in Chicago, talking about crime, talking about displacement, lack of investment in south and west side neighborhoods. Uh, this was also at the height of the migrant crisis. So he was using that to talk about that and using the emotions, the high emotions from people in the black community to talk about that. And from the people I've talked to that were around at that point, they left it impressed. The those who went in skeptical said, hey, he's actually kind of a cool guy. And that's something you don't see GOP candidates usually do is come to the south side of Chicago, usually spending more time in uh, Naperville, diners, talking about uh, being, <laughs> acting Ooh, like they're in Chicago. So I, I found that I found that very interesting. And I think with the with the current situation with the black community, when it comes to voting, uh, the Democratic Party is losing more and more black men. They've been losing black men voters since 2008, every single election cycle. And this past one with Trump was like a record number of black men voting GOP. <laughs> Um, that number continues to grow. I think people like Kanye West are a big part of the reason for that. And a person like Vivek Ramaswamy can appeal to that fringe area, the independents and those who don't traditionally vote and maybe sway them over. But if he could make a play for VP with Trump, I think that's pretty scary in 2024 for a Joe Biden candidacy. He did say that he would pardon him if he were elected, if Ramaswamy became president, he would pardon Donald Trump for any crimes for which he would be convicted. I noticed that he um, said that he wants to raise the voting age from 18 to 25 unless you do six months of military service or you can pass the quiz that we give immigrants coming into this country. The naturalization office has a hundred questions. They show them to people. They got to study them. Then they randomly sit down with them and they ask them 10 of those questions. And if you get six of the 10 right, then you also get to become a U.S. citizen as long as you've done all of the other things you got to do. You got to pass that test or do six months of service in the military or be a first responder. 
because baristas, I guess, aren't important. You got to throw out ideas like that if you're running fourth or fifth place in a presidential campaign. But <laughs> I would invite everyone, though, that speaks to I don't think enough people understand what that civics test is that you have to get to be naturalized citizen. So I just had a friend who was just just naturalized U.S. citizen. He's been here 10 years, I think. How many people who you know who vote could tell you how many members of Congress there are? <laughs> I've got the quiz here. <laughs> that was no one, one of the questions. <laughs> Almost no one. And that's, guess what? If you want to be a citizen of the United States, you have to answer that question. And people should think about that when they think about immigrants coming to our country and the, the lessons that they learn about American civics. And the oh, fact I think that some of them are better uh, educated about our country than we are. But, Absolutely. But, but what Ramaswamy is saying, all right, if you're uh, under the age of 25 and you know the answer to that question, then you don't get to vote. Well, th- I don't think that's how it works. We don't. We don't give the constitutional right to vote to the smartest people or the richest people. But if I'm not smart enough, Ramaswamy says I don't get to vote until no matter how stupid I am at the age of 26, now I do get to vote. This thing right. doesn't make any sense. It's a horrible idea. But the, the, <laughs> the, the problem is he's a very smart guy who can come up with very – I would call that a marketing-centric – policy. Fair enough. I get that. But you know what? And pardon me, I keep cutting you guys off, but this is just one thing that bugs me about this guy. I think what a waste of talent. Tucker Carlson is really smart and a really good communicator. And he wastes all of that IQ and brain power because he knew he could get rich saying horrible stuff on Fox. And I see Ramaswamy doing some of the same things. I go, how could somebody that charismatic and smart have such super nationalistic ideas that I don't think serve the country well, but might serve your candidacy well. T- talked about how brilliant and wonderful he thinks Tucker Carlson is on the Barry Weiss podcast. It made me think like, wait a minute, Tucker Carlson on his show, as John, you just pointed out, was a, is a, to- was a toxic person for our culture, for our news environment. Uh, and, and his his refusal, Ramaswamy's refusal to distance himself from Trump shows that he's really not a new voice. He's got some loopy ideas, but he is He is not going to be a traditional figure that's going to take the Republican Party back to where it was when it was, you know, the the Bush family's Republican Party. You know, maybe he's going to get some young voters. Maybe he's going to get some black. I don't know. But but he's not going to win the presidential nomination. The idea that we've been kicking around is maybe he wants to be vice president or or he and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Kerry Lake. They're all these ultra conservative people who are vying for that spot underneath Trump because they ain't going to be Mike Pence. I find it hard to believe that he would care to be vice president. And the reason is what you just said, which is that he had a really successful career in biotech that he left to do this. And the reason that he's doing this is the same thing you see a lot of folks like on Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg doing. These are billionaires, right? Like they can, and Vivek is not a billionaire, but these people are set up for life, but they don't have one thing, which is attention. And attention is one of the most valuable things in our culture. And I think what he's doing by running for president is setting himself up as someone who deserves attention for his commentary on national political issues. And he's setting himself, he, he is running for president to establish that platform as a voice, maybe in some kind of media venture or something like that. Because if you have attention, you can do a lot of those things. You don't have to be uh, take a job as vice president to get that. Is that like RFK Jr.? Yes, exactly. I think that's a very, very similar case. He imagine RFK Jr. would not be able to have the platform he has right now if he wasn't running for president. But he owned the room, huh, Brandon? When he was on the South Side, folks dug him. They liked what he was saying, or at least how he was saying it. People were digging what he was saying. He's a great speaker. There's no doubt about that. Great communicator, relatively young. 
So he's going to appeal to people, I think, pretty easily. So I, I got to pause, though, and say it's fascinating. We all we are all saying Trump is inevitable. <laughs> and this man just got a RICO charge. This is wild. This is wild. I can't believe what timeline are we in? What alternate universe are we in? RICO charges. Yeah, he can't. And those are the ones that uh, Vivek, if he's president, cannot pardon because those are state charges. State charges, yeah. It seems to be a movement afoot in Georgia. The Republicans there maybe to try to uh, pass a law that would allow them to remove troublesome Democratic pro- prosecutors the way Ron DeSantis has been removing prosecutors down in Florida. Uh, very, very bothersome idea to me that you would have the uh, legislative branch pull the strings like that on the judicial branch. Uh, that strikes me as a really, really dangerous idea. Very, very un-American. I don't know what you guys thought about the 19 people which were indicted. One of them is the former president. I worried that it's too big a thing that the Fulton County District Attorney is trying to do there, that if you just said, let's focus on that perfect phone call, find me the 12,000 votes, I can get my head around that. I think that's probably a crime. And If somebody else was on that call, maybe they should be indicted too. But this thing is so sweeping, you wonder how long it's going to take and how difficult it will be to charge or or to win. And is this the best approach? You just can't make decisions like that based on politics, I don't know. It's like if we're a nation of laws and the court system and the prosecutors, they've got to follow the evidence and make the charges and they can't be worried about the political campaigns. So, yeah, I mean, it may not be advantageous to the Democrats or Biden to have Trump under all these indictments. It it seems like every indictment makes everyone think that he's a bigger martyr than he than he was before. And that this is a measure. The number of indictments, the number of charges, say 91 of them, that each one of them is proof that he is a threat to the Democrats. And that, that, that that's the only thing I can think of that explains why, would you say, 57 percent of Republicans yeah. are supporting him? Yeah. They must think that he is the strongest candidate to go up against Biden, because that's really what is animating the Republican voters right now, is they want Biden out of the White House. They want a Democrat out of the White House. They want to control the House and Senate. I mean, just like the Democrats do. I'm not saying there's a, a strange desire in their part. And they think that, that Trump is the best guy, the best horse to ride in on. Democrats don't seem to feel that way about Biden. I haven't seen this, uh, the cross tabs or whatever, on this Quinnipiac poll. But I'm, all the polls that I've seen show that a minority of Democrats are excited about Biden as their mm-hmm. candidate and not somebody else. Well, I do have the cross tabs. I do have the Biden versus Trump, if that's the way this one shakes out. And remember, these are snapshots, not predictive models necessarily, but that's where we are today. So in that Quinnipiac poll, 2024 general election, 47% say they would vote in the general election for President Biden, and 46% say they would vote for Donald Trump. So that's even. Women are carrying the day for Donald, for a Joe Biden, 55-37. And almost the split of that, explain that to me, um, men for Trump. It's 55% say they would vote for Trump, men, and uh, only 38% of the men say they would vote for Biden. 55% of the women say they would vote for Biden. 55% of the men say they would vote for Trump. Is the takeaway from that that Joe Biden, however good the economy is or however well he's handling Ukraine and Russia or whatever he's doing well, 
he's not selling it, Austin, that this is how bad it is for Biden. Maybe not how good it is for Trump. Trump's in concrete. You know, those people are going to be there. He will shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. I, I, well, I think it's somewhat inevitable, right? Because Joe Biden was elected not on some op, some some policy platform or vision of the future or um, something like that. He was elected to get Trump out of office. And now Trump's out of office. But again, that's his biggest gift. If that's who he runs against, he runs on the same promise he ran four years ago. Don't let Donald Trump be president. And and honestly, that'll probably be enough to win. I, that's what I feel like at this point. We'll do. We'll run it back. It'll be all the same kinds of debates, very similar talking points on both sides, and people will ultimately it will ultimately be a referendum on Trump, not on Biden. Eric, how do you explain it that after four indictments now, it just looks like he's guilty. We might not have the verdicts before the election, but how is it that 57% still want Donald Trump, at least on the Republican side? I'm baffled by the question, really, because I don't have any idea why people would continue to support this guy, other than that they want a Republican and believe in their heart that he is the one who has the the charisma and the audience appeal, uh, the voter appeal to beat Biden. And it's undeniable that he excites people in a way that Ron DeSantis or even Ramaswamy, they don't excite people. They don't get these huge crowds turning out. And it's sort of a brilliant political strategy on his part. You never knew what that guy was going to say. They used to cover his his rallies live because you just never knew what crazy thing he was going to say. And and that really excited people and, and drew them to his candidacy in a way that they thought this, this guy's going to this guy's going to make everything right. And he would make these extravagant promises that. For some reason, they don't seem to hold against him. He said he's going to build a wall. He said he's going to hit a big, beautiful health care plan. Uh, he, he didn't call. The only thing he really followed through on was appointing a lot of conservative justices to the Supreme Court. And so they, they feel like he's the guy who makes people like me really mad. And that's a real virtue for them. I don't get really, really <laughs> mad. I don't get really mad about that. Vivek Ramaswamy or Chris Christie or or even Mike Pence. I don't agree with him, but it doesn't infuriate me the way Trump does. And that's a that's a virtue. Uh, for a lot of Republican voters, they want someone who makes people like me really mad. Own so, the libs. I, that's, yeah. all I, that's, that's all I can think of. Well, what do you guys think is going to happen on Monday when Trump says he's going to announce his comprehensive defense of, I think it's just the charges in Georgia, but he's got a 100-page presentation he's going to give, and he's going to lay out his – I'm sure his attorneys are going, this is not a good idea – But it sounds like he's going to show his hand, or at least what he thinks was election fraud. The election was stolen from him in Georgia. He's been holding on to it for two and a half years now? Is that that what he's telling you? I think it's recent. Well, yeah. I mean, if he had grid information, he could have gotten out in front of these indictments, maybe. But I, I mean, I think it's just going to be nonsense. That's my guess. I am as in the dark as the rest of you. I am just sitting back and just marveling at the entertainment that is the fact that in the same state of Georgia, Donald Trump and a rapper named Young Thug are both facing RICO charges from the same prosecutor at the same time. This is crazy. <laughs> RICO. That's a mafia thing, right? And Rudy Giuliani, the guy that invented RICO cases, basically. Like, he's got a RICO charge now. This is There's a great rap song called by Drake and Meek Mill called The RICO. We might just get hit with The RICO. I've been playing it on loop over and over because <laughs> who would have thought? This crossover would have happened. I'm I'm just, it's fascinating. Let's talk about Michael Orr for a little bit, guys. He's a retired NFL left tackle who won a Super Bowl ring and played at Ole Miss. 
His story is told in Michael Lewis's The Blind Side and was later made into a movie starring Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw as Sean and Leanne Tui and Quentin Aaron as Michael Orr. This week, we discover that the real-life Orr is suing the real-life Tuies, who took him in as a member of their family when he was 17. He says they never legally adopted him, and not only is he not an heir to their family fortune, and they sold their fast food restaurants for over $200 million, but he was cut out of the movie's revenue. I think in the um, public arena, this case has sort of been ping-ponging back and forth. I think at first we were aghast that they would treat little old Michael so badly, uh, but on further examination, I don't think the oars are bad people. Um, I think the pendulum is swinging back that way. Have you guys been paying attention to this story? When it first came up, I didn't jump on it because I thought, eh, this is not a thing. This is becoming a thing. Well, my, my thought had to do with the length of time that it took him to all this to come out. I mean, he was he was a high school kid when they when they brought him into their family. I guess I thought they had adopted him also. Um, and he went on to college and then he went on to the pros and signed, must have signed numerous contracts and endorsement deals and so on. Uh, I, I don't understand that he never called to his attention this idea that he wasn't uh, adopted. adopted. Or that he, I just, I, he, he, there was a conservatorship right. involved, right? Right, um, right. I mean, that, that's only, I mean, this had come up, you know, after he graduated college, all of a sudden you realize this, I think, well, wow, this is the Tui family. They really, really screwed this kid over. I, I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't know. Who, who to root for here? I don't know. Anyone have, any, anyone have a rooting interest here? I, I'm I rooting for the Tuies. I think they did the right thing. I think they <laughs> they were wealthy when they uh, took him into their home. I can't imagine that they said, hey, this great big uh, doughy high school kid is going to become a NFL football player, so let's bring him into the family establish conservatorship, but don't adopt him. That way, if he ever gets rich, you know, we won't have to share our money with him, but maybe we'll get some of his money or he doesn't get our money. I mean, th- that that's too contrived. I can't imagine they were thinking that. I think they thought, hey, this kid can play football um, and he's alone. Let's help him out. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything to contradict that narrative. The, you know, I, I know that the movie – there's some scenes in there. Maybe they weren't really driving along and saw him in the cold rain and said, oh, we need to get him in the car, and, and they took him home that night. Maybe that didn't really happen. But I think the overall arc of the story is true. This case makes me think of – so when I'm not doing uh, Illinois Policy Institute stuff, I wear a hat as a, I run a marketing agency. And we work with this guy, Bill Courtney, who was the star of the documentary Undefeated. And that was, it won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2011. And Bill Courtney is from Memphis, and he's white. And he became the head coach of uh, the Manassas High School football team in Memphis, Tennessee, which is all black. And when he started there, uh, I think the last 10 seasons, there was something like like 4-90 and 90 or something was their record. And he took their team uh, to the playoffs for the first time, and that's the subject of the documentary. And I asked Bill about sort of this notion that really came to the fore because of the blind side of like the white savior when it comes to football. And Bill said, here's what I think of that term. When I started coaching at Manassas, about half the team had bought into my model. Half the team totally didn't. And I went to the head of the one half of the team and I said, why isn't this other half of the team buying in? And they said, coach, 
they're waiting to see if you're a turkey person. And Bill said, what's a turkey person? And he said, well, there are a bunch of people like you from your part of our town who come into our community every year at Christmas and Thanksgiving <laughs> and out turkeys to yeah, everybody. Yeah. And uh, we never see them again. And those people are coming not for us, but to make them feel good about themselves. And they're trying to figure out if that's what you are. So we're like, are you in or are you out? Right. And he had approved over several years that like he was in here in the trust of his players. But clearly um, this family really didn't earn the trust of Michael Orr. So I guess we'll find out like what's true versus what's being claimed. But I mean, clearly the guy, the, the star of the story does not agree with what the popular take is. I saw a list of greatest true sports movies of all time and that one was on the list it's amazing it's it's like i highly recommend it it's it's on netflix you can watch it i also have the list of the top 25 sports movies of all time true or not what do you guess number one is i'm on a tangent now but i've got the list in front of me what do you think the number one according to one survey sports movie is of all time hoosiers is number two and that it, it deserves it. I mean, that's a what a what a fun, great movie. Field of Dreams is number one. Yeah. Oh, Kevin okay. Costner is in three of the top fifteen. By the way, <laughs> Brian Song is three. Rocky four. Brian Song, an ABC movie of the week in nineteen seventy one. How about that? <laughs> then Rocky is number four. Rudy is number five, which is um, kind of true, pretty true. Raging Bull, Remember the Titans, Caddyshack, Friday Night Lights, and A League of Their Own. Moneyball is 16, Bull Durham 17, Tin Cup 14. Kevin Costner in a lot of those. Is Blindside on the list at all? No, which is weird because I think Blindside is a terrific movie. Did you like that movie? I can tell you right now, The Blind Side is every black person's least favorite sports movie ever made. <laughs> I, I can remember watching that movie and cringing the entire time. Why? And I think I, it just—it's like it's a—it's a white savior movie. It feels like, and and the story itself makes Michael Orr look like an idiot. Like the the little um, the son of the Tuies is like teaching him how to play football with condiments on a on a kitchen table. Like it, it's. It feels a little unrealistic and a little oversimplistic of probably what actually happened. And so I've always been a little skeptical of the Tui or situation. Um, but I'm also skeptical of Michael Orr bringing this up now. It's been how many years now since this movie came out? Um, he had an NFL career. Like, you're just now realizing that you weren't adopted. And he's not I, losing I, that much money. I mean, the if what he wants right. is a cut of the profits from the film that the family got, uh, he made thirty plus million in the NFL. He's this is not going to be a game changer for him financially. Which is why did he run out of money? Like I'm, I'm know. just I'm I don't know what's going on here. It just feels very the the timing is odd to me. Um, but I always was skeptical of the Tui story. So I'm curious to, to see how it plays out itself. It's unfortunate that it's gone back and forth and been so nasty. A uh, story that you know inspired a lot of people, uh, but ugh, the, the timing—I just can't get over why he took so long to realize if he—if it really took that long to realize that you didn't make any profit from this movie and that you were not actually adopted, you were in a conservatorship. I, yeah. I don't know why that took you so long. You know, 
I'm more interested in your take as a person of color watching that and cringing when <laughs> when this white guy thought it was this wonderful movie. And Michael Orr was portrayed in the film as having innate intelligence but never got a good education. Remember that the white teachers that took him under their wing discovered that he was really bright, and then they nurtured that, and lo and behold, he became the person he was going to be. In real life, he was... Um, an All-American, and I think an academic All-American. He wasn't a dummy. Oh, yeah. But watching the movie, I didn't know that. I thought he was at least undereducated. Maybe he wasn't that smart. I didn't know anything about Michael Orr. I'm just watching this movie. Did you read Clarence Page's op-ed in the Tribune today about the white savior complex? He, he brought this up. He kind of went back and forth on it because <laughs> he felt that it was really a movie with a good heart. Be kind to this kid and help him out and take him in as your own and be colorblind, which, uh, you know, all of that, at least from a white person's perspective, was what the movie looked like. And there was Clarence Page, a person of color, and he wished that the real-life story matched better the the, the movie in that the motives were sincere. I watched this movie a long time ago. I, I didn't think about it in those terms. Yeah, it's kind of like how I felt watching Green Book as well. Like it's just, I don't know, something about movies like The Help is another good example. The the framing, the way they're done, and the movies are usually not made by black people. They're usually made by white directors and writers, almost for a white audience with a white lens on racism. And it's almost like this is the this is the the Caucasian version of racism and fixing racism in America. The stories, it, there's no doubt it's an inspiring story. There's no doubt, no doubt about that. I just, it definitely is one of those white saviory films. I got to read this this thing by Clarence Page. He's a great writer. Um, but I'm very curious to read that because it's a trope that exists and has existed in a lot of films across mediums uh, for a while. We see it happen with the Oscars and the Emmys. We see the conversation come back up. So I'm curious what he had to say about it, for sure. You know, another movie he brought up was, what was the movie about the civil rights? Mississippi Burning. Yeah. He also brings up Mississippi Uh, Burning in that. Also, I think, almost inherent in sort of the dramatization of real stories that, especially with sensitive topics like that, it's it's so difficult to strike the right tone because they always want to take a little bit of liberty with the true story, and and we're always sort of watching for what the differences are. I am curious what you guys think of Undefeated, because I think it, it deals with a lot of the similar topics, but because it's a doc, it, it's harder to feel that cringe because it's real. You're watching what really happened. Yeah. Well, I'm going to put that on my to-do list this weekend, guys. I will make sure I watch that movie, Austin. I will report back to you. With the full, I'll probably watch Blindside again, though, if you don't mind. No one needs to feel bad for watching it. Well, thank you it's for. Okay. We get it's dispensation okay. from <laughs> Brandon for whatever feelings we may have. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, good enough. Hey, by the way, postscript to uh, two things as we wrap it up. One is the River Valley Rangers performed on the St. Genevieve Riverboat in Ottawa. The Zorns and the Williams were, along with many WGN Radio and Mincing Rascals podcast listeners, on that boat. And we heard Eric Zorn play the fiddle. Another young man played the mandolin. Another guy was great on the guitar. They played their bluegrass music for a two-hour cruise on the St. Genevieve last Saturday night. That was so fun. Everybody was so dialed into the music. And it was just a really nice time on this old-fashioned paddle wheel boat. It was not me playing the fiddle. It was my son, Ben. Oh, did I say it was you? Uh, he says I, Eric, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Your son. It was uh, Mark, 
Mark Messer and Daniel Watkins were the other two musicians. And yeah, they were, they were a fun band. And, and I really appreciate John, you getting the ball rolling on that. And you guys all see John Williams work a, a riverboat sometime. He was, <laughs> he was glad handing and introducing me to people. And it was, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I was going to sit down with Eric and Johanna and then I go, okay, just excuse me for one minute. Cause these people came on the boat. Some folks drove up from Lincoln, Illinois, having heard about it on the podcast and they wanted to say hello. So I was visiting with them and then we were over here. And so, uh, I was moving around the room a little bit but we could hear the music the whole time and it was really nice uh and then one brandon and i will be singing at the uh caldwell lily pond the paddle boat if anyone wants to come (laughs) really you you and brandon are a duo now i didn't know that Uh, there you go you know i got more of the baritone going on i think can you sing are you a singer you've got a good voice both of you guys do brandon are you a singer uh, in the shower, yeah, All occasionally. Right. That'd be a no. <laughs> and then one last note. I'm looking at producer Pete again over there. So we don't have any information yet about our ticket sales for the Mincing Rascals on the Road. But the four of us and John Hansen will be on stage at the small theater at Second City. And that is going to be September 19th. And... I don't have uh, any ticket information yet, <laughs> and I'm uh, getting a little ticked at the uh, the staff here because we do want to sell tickets before September 19th, so it's about a month away, a little more than that, and um, tickets will go on sale. You will hear about it on this podcast. You will hear about it at WGN Radio, and if you've got questions about that or any uh, feedback for us, feel free to email me. Just send your thoughts and questions about it to John Williams at WGNRadio.com, and we will see you in person on stage then. And we'll drop another podcast on you next week. Okay, guys, good job. Nice to talk Thanks, to you Thanks, John. Talk soon. Thanks, okay. fellas. All right, guys. Catch you later. Enjoy the blind side. Yeah. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I might as well, even as everybody has clicked out. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. And yeah, we'll drop another pod on you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 